Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And now as we open the scriptures, I pray that you would open our hearts, guide our minds and change our lives to your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest problems that human beings face is doubt. As believers, we may feel this is a problem only people of faith experience. But doubt is a universal condition. The nervous fiancé will ask, how can I know this person loves me? The pressured executive will question, how can I be sure this is a good decision? The harried cabinet minister worries, will I have my job next week? (laughs) All these questions and a million others are common to humanity and will have an impact upon how we live our life. Doubt can affect our emotions, limit our decisions, restrict our opportunities. In a contingent world where certainty is an extremely rare commodity, we all have to deal with our doubts. The hardcore rationalists may flaunt their intellectual confidence, but move them to an area of life where the vagaries of human interaction impact upon their self-contained universes, and you'll see doubts of one form or another eroding their composed assurance. Doubt can never be eliminated from human life, because that would require certainty about every possible contingency. Buy a puppy, have a child, just step out of bed and you'll realise that's never going to happen. But this is not a bad thing. In fact, doubt is actually an essential foundation of knowledge. Doubt lies behind all the questions we ask. And without questions, we learn nothing. In asking questions, we move towards answers. And with answers comes deeper understanding. A deeper understanding of our world, ourselves and others. And for the follower of Jesus, doubt is actually an essential component of faith. Because in the answers to our questions, the debilitating power of doubt is removed and turned into the empowering gift of trust. When we have answers to our questions, we move from confusion to confidence. In a moment of great doubt at the top of Mount Sinai, Moses asked the question of God, How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Now that seems a rather odd question For a man who has been instrumental in the widespread destruction of Egypt and the deliverance from slavery of over a million of his fellow Israelites to ask of God. But often our changed circumstances can rattle our previously entrenched convictions. God's answer was that his presence would go with Moses and the people. But that wasn't the only question Moses asked of God. That first question was essentially pragmatic in nature. Will you go with us? Will you protect us? But his second question strikes right into the heart of identity. If your presence does not go with us, 
What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? What will show the people of the world that Israel is different? How will the nations around be able to see that these are God's people? Well, God had already given Moses his answer before he'd even asked the question in Exodus 33, verse 14. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The Spirit of God with his people would be the distinguishing feature Moses asked for. A short illustration of that presence came to the 70 elders in that story we heard a little snippet of just a moment ago in Numbers 11. And if you remember the rest of the story, you'll know that Moses' assistant Joshua came up to him and told him he should, should stop the two elders in the camp who also were prophesying in the spirit. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That was an incredibly significant wish for Moses. As we see, as we turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you've got your Bibles handy, you might like to flip up Ephesians chapter 1. And have a listen to how... Paul begins his letter to the Ephesian church. And as you're listening, take a note of the intimacy of the language. Ephesians 1 verses 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, this is not a letter to any bunch of any bodies. Paul is addressing the family of God. He starts by giving his credentials as an apostle. But what lies behind that role is the fact that he's been chosen for this task by the direct actions of God. Note too who he addresses. God's holy people in Ephesus. At its simplest, holy means set apart. God is holy because he's set apart from us. He's different from his creation. The utensils in the temple were holy because they were set apart for use in worship. Israel was holy because they were set apart to be God's chosen people. Remember Moses' question? If your presence does not go with us, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Israel would be distinguished from the other nations and people because God was with them. They would be set apart from the rest of the world because God was present with them. But Paul is not speaking of Israel in this case. He's speaking of Christians the faithful in Christ Jesus. These are the ones Paul now has in mind as God's holy people. When he says in verses 13 and 14 there, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. As evangelicals, I think we tend to focus more on God the Father and Jesus the Son. 
we tend to overlook the fact that the Holy Spirit is intimately and inextricably linked to all that God has been doing and is doing in our world. The Holy Spirit was present and active in the creation of the world. The Holy Spirit was present and active in the rescue of God's people from Egypt and deliverance to the promised land. He was at work in the leadership of Israel, empowering the judges. He was at work in the prophets speaking to the people. In nearly all of the key ministries and those moments in Jesus' life, it was the Holy Spirit impelling and empowering Jesus in his work. All through the book of Acts, we see that same transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in the apostles in the early church. And the promise of Jesus was that that same transforming power would continue to be at work in all his followers till the end of time. Paul recognises that when he speaks of the redemption of those who are God's possession. And that's not something that was limited to the people of the time Paul was writing to. Paul has in view the full stretch of human history that will culminate with the return of Christ and the fulfilment of all God's purposes. Paul has in mind all disciples of all nations, people who have believed in Jesus, have put their trust in him and have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So how do you know if you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit? How can you be sure you are one of those holy ones that Paul is speaking to through his letter to the Ephesian followers? Do you ever doubt your relationship with Jesus? Do you ever question whether you really are a Christian? Do you ever look at other Christians in the church and think they seem more certain of the things that they believe in than you do? Welcome to the very human world of doubt. <clears throat> now, Moses wasn't the only hero in the Bible who had doubts about what he was doing. Luke writes in his Gospel how after John the Baptist was arrested, he sent his disciples to ask of Jesus, Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That's amazing, isn't it? <clears throat> John the Baptist who saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus, who heard the Father say, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, has doubts about whether Jesus really is the Messiah. But you can understand John's doubts when you first realise he's been arrested and tossed into prison. Now, that's happened to a lot of people, not only in the Bible, but also down through history. And their faith hadn't wavered, even under torture. So it's the next bit that's important for us to understand John's doubts, and maybe our own. John was the original fire and brimstone preacher. As this little snippet shows when he was asked whether he was the Messiah, from Luke chapter 3. Verses 16 and following. I baptise you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You can almost see the locust kicking in his beard, can't you? Notice how John draws a distinction between his ministry and the Messiah's. John baptises people as a symbolic way of washing away their sins. It was a baptism of repentance, of the desire of a sinner to turn their back on their old behaviours and offer themselves to God. But the one who follows him, Jesus, will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John's not thinking here of a purifying fire of the Holy Spirit coming into a person's life and refining them of the sins that have marred their life and alienated them from God. No, no, no. John's thinking of fires of damnation, of the Messiah with a pitchfork tossing sinners into perdition and the burning fires of hell. Now, do you remember when Jesus, after Jesus was baptised, uh, he was driven off into the desert to be facing the temptations of the devil? Well, after Jesus returned to Nazareth in the power of the Spirit, Luke tells us, and began his ministry, he starts with a sermon in the synagogue. And he takes the scroll and begins reading the words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. But Jesus stopped short of the second half of Isaiah 61 verse 2, the quote, where Isaiah concluded, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus declares his ministry to be one of salvation and rescue. Good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, the oppressed freed, the year of the Lord's favour proclaimed. Jesus stops short of judgment because as the apostle john wrote in 3 chapter 3 verse 17 for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him john the baptist was expecting fire brimstone and judgment but jesus preached salvation from the condemnation under which this world stood, which we also once stood under. John's doubts led to his question, are you the one or should I look for another? John was confused and Jesus removes that confusion when he sends John's disciples back with the words, go and report back to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. 
Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus is confirming to John that he is the Messiah because he's doing all the things that the scriptures say the Spirit will enable him to do. So what about us? What deals with our doubts? Where does the answer to our questions lie? Well, let's return back to Ephesians 1 via one last reference back to Moses' question. If your presence doesn't go with us, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? That's a question that we can personalise and we can ask it of ourselves. What distinguishes me and God's people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Well, the answer lies in Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, where Paul says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you have heard the good news of Jesus and responded in faith, trusting him as your Lord and Saviour, then you are included in the people of God through Christ. How can you be sure of that? Because when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Friends, that is a statement of fact from the word of God. A seal in the ancient world was a mark of ownership. And you see that throughout the Bible. And here, Paul explains that the Holy Spirit is that seal which marks you as belonging to Christ. The Spirit's presence within you is the sign of God's pleasure with you. A pleasure that is derived not because you've done a whole pile of good things, but because of your recognition of your need of Jesus to save you from your sins and your trust that he can do that very thing. And it gets better, as the TV ads encourage. Not only is the Holy Spirit dwelling within us a mark of God's ownership of us, He's a deposit, a foretaste, a glimpse in this fallen world of the glory that is coming our way when God gathers all of his people from all of history to be with him for all eternity. How can we know that? As we see the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us and the brothers and sisters in Christ around us to be the people we were created to be. If you have believed and trusted Jesus, if you have the Spirit within you, that is a promise of God. So, how do you deal with your doubts? When the question arises within you, turn to God's Word and listen to the Spirit within you providing the answer. 
The blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby summed it up in her famous hymn. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Is Jesus yours? Do you believe he is the son of God? Do you trust him as Lord and Saviour? Do you believe you are no longer a slave but a son? Do you believe the Spirit indwells you? I'm not asking whether you feel that to be true, but do you accept that God says they are true of all who believe in his Son? Because when we believe God's answers to our questions we'll move from confusion to confidence. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a gracious, loving Father who has rescued us from our sins and the darkness of this broken world. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit does indwell within your people. And so we pray this morning that your Spirit would be guiding and directing us each day that we would be listening to his words to us, that we would be obedient to all he directs us into, so that we would be those people you have created us to be. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.